from PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we dip back into our archives. We revisit a 2012 interview with Furman University philosophy professor Dr. Aaron Simmons. During our conversation, Professor Simmons talks about his relationship to his denomination, Pentecostalism, and how he understands the philosophical movement of postmodernism and its relationship to Christianity. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Aaron Simmons, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Turn. We're discussing the sometimes rocky relationship between Christianity and postmodernism. Aaron Simmons, welcome to Things Not Seen. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't often do this with my guests, but because there is often a perception that more conservative Christian identities have to be opposed to postmodernism. I was wondering if you'd be willing to start us off by sharing with our listeners your self-description with regard to your faith. How do you classify yourself? Absolutely. Um, you, you say you're usually don't start off this way. Um, I will say I, I usually don't talk a lot about this. One of the tricky things about being a postmodern philosopher of religion is that you have to make sure that you're not perceived as too conservative when it comes to theological views. Um, and it turns out that my own background can be perceived that way. So I am the grandson of a Pentecostal pastor. Um, Ernie T. Height was my grandfather, and he was a pastor in the Church of God out of Cleveland, Tennessee. And to this day, I continue to identify myself as a Pentecostal. Um, that said, one of the things that I find so uh, remarkable about Pentecostalism is that it needn't be as conservative as it is often presented as being. Pentecostalism actually started in America um, back in the early 1900s at the Azusa Street revivals. It started with a deep social justice tone to it. It began on the streets. It began bringing people in, um, feeding them, and talking about God and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the world. And so it seems to me that Pentecostalism's ability to uh, be emotive, not just intellectual, is something that speaks in its favor. It's, it, it's able to recognize the whole person. So that said, when I talk about being a Pentecostal, I'm tapping into that heritage, that social justice embodied emotive sort of tradition, and not tapping into the identity that Pentecostalism has socially obtained as being affiliated with a particular right-wing uh, model of social ethics. And I think that being able to parse that out differently allows Pentecostalism to push back against the idea of being a Pentecostal, meaning you are a social conservative, and being a Pentecostal, meaning that you are anti-intellectual, like some um, scholars such as Mark Knoll have charged. And I think that really pushing back against that allows Pentecostalism to be a vibrant religious identity in the 21st century that understands 
potentially a postmodern way of making sense of the world as right there at the heart of the Christian message that we've received. Now, when you talk about Pentecostalism, one thing that stands out to me is that it sounds like the Pentecostalism that you're describing is a faith that takes the Bible very seriously, but you've you've mentioned that even though we oftentimes would associate biblical literalism and, and conservative readings of the Bible with conservative political views, you see those two things as not being necessarily chained together. No, not at all. Um, that said, I wouldn't describe myself as a biblical literalist. Um, I would describe myself as existentially committed to the reality of God in the world. And one of the ways that as a Pentecostal I see that being possible is through physical manifestations of God's Spirit. That doesn't mean, though, that I understand Pentecostalism to be a very narrow conception. I side with Jamie Smith, um, who says that Pentecostalism should be understood as a big tent conception. And so I, for instance, myself have never spoken in tongues, but I recognize that as a legitimate reality of God in the world. Well, when I listen to sermons in evangelical talk radio, I often hear the term postmodernism being used sort of as a rallying cry or a sort of a whipping post. I, I think of Josh McDowell and others who have spent a lot of time speaking against the dangers that they perceive in postmodernism. So I'm wondering, what are some of the misconceptions and misunderstandings about postmodernism that you have encountered? So I grew up um, in this Pentecostal tradition that was not friendly to postmodernism. Um, I was warned against the evils of people like Friedrich Nietzsche, um, which is kind of funny given that I quoted Nietzsche in my wedding ceremony, and the pastor who married my wife and I commented that he had never quoted Nietzsche from the pulpit before. <laughs> um, I think postmodernism is perceived by a lot of um, Christianity as being dangerous for ultimately three reasons. One, because it is perceived as a claim that is self-contradictory at its heart, something like there are absolutely no absolutes, the only truth is that there is no truth, and so there's a worry that if this is a self-contradictory model, that it then is a disastrous way to ground ultimate truth, which Christians take to be the revelation of Christ in the world. So that, I think, is a genuine problem. If postmodernism is contradictory, then it's something we probably should avoid. Secondly, is a worry about what I would call meaning nihilism, which is that nothing really matters. Everything is just a play of power. Everything is just a political manifestation of preference. So there's nothing ultimately underneath what we do in the world that would allow us to be able to make sense of what we ought to do in the world. And that then gives rise to, I think, this meaning nihilism gives rise to what I would call an ethical relativism, which is, so since nothing really matters, ultimately what we do or don't do, the good is a matter of what we will make it. So there is no um, objective truth, <laughs> there is no objective meaning, and there is no objective moral guidance. And I actually think, if it's the case... <laughs> that postmodernism makes those sorts of claims, then there are really good reasons for Christians to worry about it. Myself, as a Pentecostal postmodernist, or a postmodern Pentecostal, uh, I, I just don't think postmodernism makes those claims. And in fact, the work I do as a scholar of uh, French postmodern philosophy, <clears throat> I rarely find in the texts 
that I read anything like the sorts of claims that you'll hear from Christians talking about postmodernism. So what is your definition of postmodernism? When you mean that when you use that term, what do you mean? So I follow Merrill Westfall, a Christian philosopher at Fordham University, when he says that ultimately postmodernism really can be summarized in the claim you can't peek over God's shoulder. God's God and you're not. And so if postmodernism is simply the idea that you can't peek over God's shoulder, I think this entails ultimately four things. So postmodernism, I think, entails A, epistemic humility, which is simply the idea that we should recognize the truth claims and knowledge claims that we make are fallible. And this, I understand, to line up very well with the Christian notion of the noetic effects of sin. Sin blinds us to being able to understand the world as it is, and instead we have to do the best we can with what we've got where we are. So we should be humble about our knowledge claims. We should recognize there are other views. There are other rational people who will think things differently. Rather than thinking one's view of Christianity is the only game in town and everyone else then must be either irrational or simply refusing to recognize the obvious truth. I think nothing productive happens from that. So epistemic humility, number one. Number two, narratival truth. And so by narratival truth, here the idea is truth is not something best understood as a correspondence between a sentence and reality, but instead truth is something that happens in stories. And the best example I can give of this is the idea that when Jesus is presented in the Gospels, we get four personal accounts of the life of Christ. And so I often, when I give talks, ask the audience, was God just a really bad writer? That it took God four tries to get this story right? And of course, everyone tends to chuckle. But for me, I think there's a serious question underlying that, which is, why is it that if one takes the Bible to be a revelation of God, why is it that revelation is not just presented as a series of propositions, true claims about who God is, Instead, it's presented as stories about personal relationships with this God as lived in the world, as bodily experienced, and you get different perspectives. So I see the potential uh, contrast between the Gospels as being different colors offered to this story in light of different personal relationships. And I think that that is something postmodernism helps us to understand about Christianity, but is not adding something to the Christian story that we started with. So epistemic humility, narratival truth, and third, an idea of what I call hermeneutic contextualism. Hermeneutic contextualism. And here, hermeneutics is a fancy philosophy word for simply theories of interpretation. And contextualism just means you're always in a situation. So we find ourselves as existing human beings in situations and having to make sense of those situations in which we find ourselves. But again, I take this to be something that is invited by the scripture when Paul says that we should work out our faith with fear and trembling. And he even says this precisely at the time where he has left the community. He says, look, when I'm gone, y'all have to work this out on your own. And it seems to me that that struggle to make sense of the world in light of the truth of Christianity is something that invites a postmodern view of Christianity to be really robust indeed. <clears throat> so epistemic humility, narratival truth, 
hermeneutic contextualism, and finally, what I would call the existential and ethical weight of reality. And by this, the idea is simply, if it turns out that we could be wrong about our truth claims, if it turns out that we understand truth now not only as propositions, but as lived stories interacting with other lived stories, and if these lived stories always require us to make sense of ourselves in our existential spaces, then reality is heavy, it's weighty, it's meaningful, precisely because it's a space that we then have to invest with meaning. So our investing it with meaning is something we do in relation with other people. And so I take the ethical weight of reality to be a claim about how it is that we find ourselves in the world with others, doing the best we can to live humbly in relationship to God and others. And this, I think, again, is a very Christian idea, if we push it that way, <clears throat> that says, look, when Jesus is asked, what's the most important command? And he says, well, love God. But then secondly, love other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And when he claims this, notice the response is, oh, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus' response to that is not a proposition, your neighbor is X, but instead he gives the story of the Good Samaritan. So he answers this question with a narratival account, and that narratival account interrupts the ease with which we are able to make sense of how to go about living in the world. Instead, Jesus presents us with an invitation to live into the weight of reality by recognizing that it is difficult, it's messy, it's complex, but it is also rewarding, life-giving, and robustly fulfilling when we live with others in light of God. This is Things Not Seen. We're speaking today with Aaron Simmons. We'll be back in a moment. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on the thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. This week, we're listening back to a 2012 interview with Professor Aaron Simmons of Furman University. Aaron identifies as a Pentecostal, and he is a philosopher who espouses a relationship between Christianity and postmodernism. So we're exploring this intersection between the religious and the philosophical around the question of postmodernism. So is postmodernism the same thing as deconstruction? You oftentimes hear these two terms used together. Are they the same, or what is the difference if they're different? So deconstruction is a particular sort of postmodern theory 
that is often affiliated with uh, the French thinker Jacques Derrida. And Jacques Derrida's idea of deconstruction is a way to make sense of texts. And by texts, we mean con a space of meaning that is presented such that it invites the reader to engage it. So Derrida famously makes the claim there is no outside of the text, and he gets sort of torn apart because of this claim. People think he means, well, there is nothing but stories. There's nothing that really is the case. And really what Derrida is trying to say is, no, when we read a book, we're having to go to this book bringing with us the assumptions, our backgrounds, our histories. And so the book means what it means only according to where I find myself reading it. And this is a complicated process that we navigate. It's a, a collaborative process, you might say, with other readers. We're in conversation with them about how to make sense of things. But the same is true about an event. So what happens on church uh, or you know, on Sunday mornings in church? What happens in a classroom uh, in a particular college? What is okay to do at a football game but not okay to do at a wedding? All of these moments, these events, are considered by deconstruction as texts to be interpreted and made sense of. So Derrida is not at all saying there is no meaning. What Derrida is saying is meaning-making is a difficult task and one in which we always invest ourselves. So it's important for Derrida that we be exceptionally good readers. And so reading a book and reading uh, the social dynamics of a football game are just as much a matter of where am I coming from, how am I making sense of what's going on around me, and how can I then uncover the structures that may be presented in this situation or in this book. And so when Derrida talks about deconstruction, it's best to understand this not as a destroying, or as my mom would always say, Aaron, you've got to stop reading those thinkers who just want to rip, tear, and shred everything to pieces. Instead, it is a deconstructing. So Derrida talks about the idea that if you're wanting to move forward, that you have to understand where it is you have been. And then if you say, well, I have been a place that is opening a future that I'm not very happy with, then the point is we have to rethink where we've been in order to open new futures. So let me give an example. If we found ourselves, say, in 1950s America, and we were trying to envision a future in which racial equality and racial harmony was possible, there was something that had to happen. There had to be a destabilizing of what was taken for granted. You had to have the civil rights movement in order to open a new possible future. And so what Derrida would say is we have to read the situations in which we find ourselves in order to figure out what is required for moving forward, given that where we are may not open all futures. There has to be a tearing down of a building sometimes in order to build a better building in its place. So Derrida's conception of deconstruction is fundamentally literary, where the world again becomes this text that we read and engage, but it's also fundamentally ethical. What ought the world to look like? What ought the text to say? 
how is it that we make sense of ourselves as readers for Derrida is a question about how we take up the responsibility that we find ourselves bearing in light of the postmodern condition. Now, when I hear you describe uh, the reading of a book as being contextually situated, I, I hear that, but I, when I think about the book being the Bible, I can imagine that there are listeners who will hear that and say, well, the Bible can't function like other books. The Bible right. must not function like other books. So how would a postmodern Christian, how would someone who is committed to both postmodernism and the Christian story speak to that and say, I mean, would, would they agree that the Bible doesn't function like other books and therefore can't be deconstructed? Or can the Bible be deconstructed too in this fashion? Well, I think it's important to understand what it is we're talking about when we talk about the Bible. So you, you had a previous guest who uh, discussed the idea that the Bible doesn't exist. <laughs> and in some senses, I deeply agree with that. And this is why earlier when I said, though there are many Pentecostals who are biblical literalists, I'm not one of them. Um, nor do I even affirm the idea of what's called biblical infallibility. I think that the Bible can be wrong at the level of propositional assertions. But that doesn't mean that I am rejecting the idea that the purposes God is trying to bring about in the world through the revelation offered in Scripture is somehow wrong. So I think we have to detach the idea of the sentence-level truth from the idea of the truth that God is trying to express. And again, the truth that God is trying to express, I think, is best understood as a life well-lived in relation to God. So that conception of a life well-lived is something I think the Bible invites us to see as hermeneutically complicated. So in Isaiah, we see a passage where God says, come, let's reason together. Let's talk together. And frequently, you see Jesus, the example of Christ engaging other people, is an invitation to further thinking, further reflection. And many times, what you'll find is Jesus challenging the dominant interpretation of the very biblical texts themselves that have been received in the tradition. So, it seems to me a mistake to think that because the Bible is understood as inspired by God and the revelation of God to the world, that this means we have to somehow not position it within reading communities, within historical contexts, and within linguistic power structures. I think, in fact, that the beauty of the revelation of God in Scripture is something that comes through even more profoundly when we recognize the fragility of the text itself, when we entrust ourselves as the community in which this text continues to signify as the revealed Word of God, then, wow, what a profound responsibility we have to be, as Derrida says, very good readers. So being a good reader doesn't mean that the meaning of a text is obvious, and I am a good reader when I recognize that meaning and fight for it tooth and nail and refuse to recognize alternative interpretations. I think being a good reader is recognizing the dynamic way in which the text can speak and continue to speak. And again, this is one of the reasons I think Pentecostalism, for me, is a, a tradition in which I continue to find myself, is because it recognizes the continued speaking of God to the world. And the continued speaking of God 
is something that needn't supervene what was said in Scripture, but it, it is a way of making sense of Scripture as continually unfolding as the communities who read this Scripture continue to unfold themselves. If I'm hearing you correctly, the process of reading, whether we're talking about a, a book off the shelf in the bookstore or the Bible, the Word of God, the process of reading should be seen as a complex process that involves and engages our reason. And indeed, you've mentioned several points in the Bible where the Bible itself prompts us to reason with these stories and prompts us to engage these stories. And I heard clearly that you said that we shouldn't look at the Bible as being a container of sort of sentence-level truth. But wouldn't a conservative listener, wouldn't a, wouldn't a person who's committed to a certain type of reading of the Bible come back at that and say, but there are certain sentences that we have to take as true? The sentences about the resurrection, for example, doesn't a Christian have to take those as propositionally true? Those aren't reflexive or interpretive. Those are statements of fact, aren't they? So I think that here's the, the funny thing about the work I do is that within the postmodern scholar world, the philosophy world in which I write and live, it is part, part of my task has been to defend the importance of propositions to the life of religious existence. Now, what I, when I do that, what I'm trying to say is, if religious existence um, and being, say, a Christian or a, a Buddhist or a practitioner of Islam, that if one is one of these things, if these are the religious communities in which one finds oneself and by which one identifies oneself, at least in part, it seems really important that one can specify what it is that makes that community the community that it is as opposed to some other community. So if I say I'm a Florida State University fan, and you say that you're a Vanderbilt University fan, we should be able, able to articulate what's different about our state of being a fan such that being a Florida State fan is different than being a Vanderbilt fan. So I'm okay with thinking that there are still central propositions that are part of the life of faith. What I am pushing back against is the idea that the truth that matters in Scripture and the way that truth functions and the way that it works is something that can be reduced to a series of propositions. Certainly, propositions and sentences are important. So I think, just personally, that um, what it is to be a Pentecostal in the tradition that I find myself in is to be committed to things like the Bible is the revealed Word of God. The, the canonic expression of Christ in the world is the um, highest manifestation of the revelation of God. That Jesus died and rose in history. These are important tr propositional truths to my tradition. But just signing a faith statement or checking boxes or passing some litmus test at the level of do you think these sentences are true – seems to me a woefully inadequate way of relating to the dynamic text that is the Bible, and even more so, a woefully inadequate way of relating to the difficult life and the structural realities that attend being a Christian. And so in this sense, I follow Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish Christian philosopher, who said, we need to stop thinking that being a Christian is some stagnant, stable thing that one is if you can recite a 
set of doctrines or a creed. Instead, he says, being a Christian is precisely something that is a constant task. He says, we should stop even talking about being a Christian and instead talk about attempting to become one. So if the idea that, look, these truths that are propositionally expressed about Christianity, what it is that those being true does, what it means, how it it matters, is that it propels me to a transformed life in the world. And that propulsion is something, I think, that is risky, it's messy, it's complicated, and it will be a life of struggle. I do not think that being religious, of whatever form, of Christian or something else, that being religious is something that eliminates the difficulty of making sense of God. <laughs> For me, it invites a ever more complicated and more um, difficult and yet more rewarding attempt to make sense of the truth of God. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Aaron Simmons, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Turn. We're discussing the sometimes rocky relationship between Christianity and postmodernism. A moment ago in our conversation, you talked about this term hermeneutics, and one one phrase that's often associated with postmodernism is the phrase the hermeneutics of suspicion. Could you say what's meant when, when people use this term hermeneutics of suspicion? Yeah, the hermeneutics of suspicion is a term uh, first used by a philosopher in the 20th century named Paul Ricoeur. And Ricoeur was referencing Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Marx, and Sigmund Freud. And what he was saying is, those of us who take seriously Freud, Marx, and Nietzsche, like I do, find ourselves realizing that the world is more complicated than we thought. And we recognize that there are reasons to think that meaning is never obvious. For Nietzsche, when he says things like, God is dead, I actually think this is a deeply important claim for Christians to understand and even to affirm. And by that I mean this. If God is dead, that doesn't mean there is no God. It's not an atheistic thesis. But instead, the idea that God is dead is simply an affirmation of the responsibility of existing humans to make sense of their world, given the context in which they find themselves. Again, for me, this is the idea of seeing through a glass darkly. There may not be easy answers. And so when we are being suspicious in light of Nietzsche, what that means is if somebody claims something is obvious, this seems to me to misunderstand the dynamics involved in ethical decision. So for Nietzsche, we are left with a world in which we have to figure out how to make the world look the way we want it to look. And I think that's something deeply important about Christian life. <clears throat> Secondly, the idea of Karl Marx. When Marx talks about suspicion, the idea here is we are suspicious of the way in which power tends to function at the level of economics. So often, for Marx, ideas that we take to undergird a political structure, liberty, justice, and equality, say, in American democracy, his point is that these ideas are often ideas produced by the very economic and social structures in which we find ourselves in order to reinforce the very power that exists. 
So as long as we believe that if you work hard, you can do it, then we will continue to work hard, even if at minimum wage, and not revolt against a system in which those who make the most money might, in fact, be able to work the least. So we end up with a situation for Marx where we should be suspicious about, again, claims to some things being obviously true because it may reflect the power structures that are trying to keep us in line rather than inviting us to challenge power structures if they are unjust. Finally, with Sigmund Freud, we get a theory of psychoanalysis where what happens is the self that we take ourselves to be and the things we take ourselves to believe in are often a mere fraction of the underbelly, the, the unconscious life of human existence. And so by focusing on the unconscious, what Freud does is helps us to understand that there's more going on in our desires and our dreams and our pursuits of whatever we take to be the good than we might be able to bring to conscious reflection. Now, I should say, though I am deeply influenced by Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche, I think there are important reasons to push back. If Nietzsche does mean God is dead as an atheistic thesis, then it's something that I resist. If Marx means by ideology and the power structures of economic discourse, a rejection of personal responsibility, I reject that. If Freud's notion of psychoanalysis is a ultimate claim about the fact that religion is just an illusion and there's nothing underneath it, I think that's wrong. But I think importantly, being a good reader is to be able to see in these texts much more than just those simple atheistic theses. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Professor Aaron Simmons of Furman University. We're discussing the relationship of Christianity and postmodernism. This is Things Not Seen. We'll be back in a moment. If you're on Twitter, please take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. If you're listening to the show for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on our website or on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful to us in getting the word out about the show. And one more plug. If you haven't yet discovered our Daily Religion Moments podcasts, you're truly missing out on a treasure. We have them all archived at our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. And thank you, as always, for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Aaron Simmons, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Turn. We're discussing the sometimes rocky relationship between Christianity and postmodernism. Well, at several points in our talk today, you've mentioned the notion of social justice and the notion of the church trying to make the world a better place, trying to imagine through its stories and enacted and embodied ethics of action. I guess I'm wondering, 
How do you classify political action for the church? How should the church be political today? So when I talk about the churches not being political or the churches being political, I'm instead talking again about this generally postmodern idea that part of the context in which the power structures that we wrestle with, we challenge, we contest, we affirm, that these are precisely what we can call the, the political space in which we find ourselves polis here understood just as the social community. So it seems to me that we do well to start by thinking that we are Christians in political contexts, which is a global claim, not the local or narrow claim of we are Christians in the context of a Republican or Democratic debate about who should be president of America. Political contexts are bigger than that. Then how one does politics might then play out as there's reasons to be a Republican or reasons to be a Democrat or reasons to <clears throat> reject both and advocate a particular kind of anarchism, say. It seems to me that these are important debates that the church should be able to have. Discussions about how it is political is something that I think would help churches be able to make sense of themselves. Now, one of the trends that concerns me um, in contemporary American Christianity is the trend towards what are sometimes referred to as non-denominational megachurches, these very big communities that are no longer denominationally affiliated, um, that tend to identify themselves as you know, welcoming to all. Sometimes you'll hear things like seeker-friendly, um, no perfect people allowed in these communities. It seems to me that that kind of narrative is a very promising one. Right? It, it, it is trying to overcome a rigidity of uh, denominational specificity. Unfortunately, however, I think that these moves have been successful by rejecting the ability for us to talk about complicated things. In other words, we are able to have a huge community because we don't talk about stuff that tends to divide communities. And yet, to me, what that does is it allows then the churches being political to be something that is tacitly maintained without ever being explicitly considered. And so this is then, I think, a place where the hermeneutics of suspicion would be very uh, welcome indeed in our church practice. We should be able to talk about the way it is that we do church together and talk about why it is that some topics are hard for us to talk about. That, I think, is where I'm going to spend my energies as a uh, philosopher in trying to affect church praxis. If it then leads to a particular church taking a stand on marriage equality, I think that's perfectly fine. If, though, it leads to a church saying, you know what, we're not going to get involved in this debate, but we encourage our congregants to be involved in this debate, I think that's perfectly fine. So I, again, don't think there is a one-size-fits-all model of how it is that we're going to then live out social justice in the context of the church. Now, not to be misunderstood, I do think that there are strong reasons within the Christian story to prefer some social justice um, positions over others. So I am, for instance, a defender of marriage equality. I do defend universal health care. I am a deep proponent of very progressive environmental policy. But my being these things 
for, I think, Christian reasons, is something that I think should invite me to be in deep dialogue with Christian brothers and sisters who might disagree with me about those issues. As long as we encourage each other not to talk about this stuff because it's really complicated or because it's obvious, right, which I think is actually more insidious, then we're not able to really be the community dealing with the world as it presents itself to us. You mentioned a moment ago environmentalism, and when I look at the contemporary environmental movement, particularly around the subject of global warming, I oftentimes see conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, uh, pastors at megachurches, doubting publicly the scientific conclusions about climate change. And I'm wondering, would you classify this sort of doubt of scientific authority as an evangelical form of what we're calling here the hermeneutics of suspicion? Maybe, um, but there are some things about which one might not need to be suspicious. So it seems to me that the current debates about climate change and human-caused climate change in particular within evangelical communities, part of, I think, the problem is there's a long history in evangelicalism in America of being worried about quote-unquote scientific experts presenting a set of results that seem to challenge important truths of the Christian faith. So classically, this occurs with the Scopes trial back in 1925. You have this you know, big debate about evolution on trial in America. <clears throat> and it turns out that those sorts of big public conflicts between something called science and something called religion, where science has fact and religion is simply value, it seems to me that that's a problematic way to understand the conversation that should happen. So it seems to me that it's because we have a very determinate and very um, unwavering conception of what the Bible says as true. In other words, we take it as obvious without being postmodernly engaged with it as a lived story that we are constantly engaging. It seems to me that when we relate to the Bible as stable in that sense, that invites the sort of conflict like we saw with evolution in the early 20th century and now that we're beginning to see about the science of climate change today. I think that we need more suspicion, <laughs> but more suspicion running now towards the very obvious claims that Christians take to be operative in their own public discourse. So I would say Christians should be better at being suspicious of, well, wait a minute, why is something challenged, something threatened about Christianity if it turns out human-caused climate change is real? We, we actually aren't at threat, aren't at risk. We're not um, overthrown if it turns out that the scientists are right about human-caused climate change. Instead, I think what you'll start finding is deeply politically motivated reasons that force evangelicals, without being conscious of this, to identify with particular political movements because it's those political identifications that have identified that community in pop culture. So earlier I said it's important to understand a Florida State fan as opposed to a Vanderbilt fan, minimally just to know what game to go to, right, and what shirt to wear. I think that what has happened in evangelicalism is if you, like me, say you are a social liberal, 
but a Pentecostal. This is something that there's not an easy way to then categorize and identify that in our current context. If, however, you say, I'm an evangelical Christian, and by that, you then just let it mean I'm a social conservative, a fiscal conservative, I'm anti-abortion, I'm anti-gay rights, and I am anti-human cause climate change. This then allows you to be publicly identified in a stable way. It allows for that voice to be a meta voice, if you will. And I think that we would do well to challenge such stability of meta voices. I think it's important for evangelicals to stand up and say, you know what, I am absolutely in favor of progressive environmental policy. And thankfully, there are many evangelicals who have begun to do this. The Evangelical Environmental Network is absolutely fantastic in its work on these issues. There have been multiple books written about the importance of loving God and saving the planet. Matthew Sleeth uh, is a name that jumps to mind in particular who's done just absolutely wonderful work here. There's been a Green Bible published, which instead of highlighting the words of Jesus in red, it highlights all the passages in the scriptures about caring for the natural world in green. So there is really progressive, important environmental activism going on. And it doesn't mean because you care about the earth, you therefore have to be socially liberal on all other issues. But as long as we allow in the environment to be a liberal issue and evangelicals to be conservatives, then there's always going to be a conflict. But that's a political conflict. It's not a theological one. So I'm imagining a listener to this program who maybe came into this intrigued by the title uh, – I'm imagining a listener to this program coming in and listening who maybe started out thinking that they were very averse to postmodernism because they had heard these mischaracterizations from from some of the, the folks that we mentioned earlier, Josh McDowell and others, who now has become intrigued by what you've been saying about your characterization of postmodernism. Where should that listener go to find out more, and how should that listener begin to explore this option of postmodernism within their their life within the church? Yeah, well, so let me give you um, a, a couple books that I think would be very helpful um, for that listener. Um, first, I would say that the most accessible uh, book that I know that does a pretty good job of kind of saying, look, Christianity and postmodernism are not so much in conflict as we might think, is by Brian McLaren. It's a book called A New Kind of Christian, and it's a story. Uh, it, it's basically a short novel. Um, about two men who meet and they have conversations about Christianity and what faith means and struggle with ethics. And I think it's a fantastic invitation to these sorts of questions. I think that at a a little more substantive level um, and a little bit more uh, complicated level, listeners might enjoy James K.A. Smith, his book, Who's Afraid of Postmodernism? And the subtitle of that, I believe, is Taking Foucault, Leotard, and Derrida to Church, <laughs> which I think is, is a wonderful place to go if you want to get a little bit more depth on how postmodernism and Christianity can be not just compatible, but maybe deeply important for each other. Um, another book that I think is important at the level of, so how would this play out in church praxis, which we talked slightly about, is the book by Peter Rollins that I was referencing called How Not to Speak of God. And in that book, there's two parts. The first part is a more complicated technical discussion of a postmodern view of Christian life. 
um, which I find actually problematic in various ways. And instead, though, I would encourage readers to look at the second part, where he just describes the services, if you will, of the icon community. And they are absolutely breathtaking. Um, it, it's, when I first read it, it absolutely inspired me for um, it inspired me to think about how it is that we could go forward differently. <laughs> you know, that, that deconstructive idea of you sometimes you have to break something in order to build it more strongly, I think is something that we see in Rollins' work as well. And then I would just say there are some really important blogs. Um, one I'll recommend is the Church and Postmodernism blog, which is hosted by The Other Journal. Um, you can go to theotherjournal.com, and it'll uh, link to the Church and Postmodernism blog. And there you can have some of the uh, most important voices in contemporary postmodern theology and postmodern philosophy of religion talking about the intersection of Christianity, postmodernism, and in particular church praxis. So those would be, I think, good places to go. Um, but then I would also say, importantly, these are topics and issues that are hard to think through on one's own. So I would encourage listeners, especially you know, college students, say, to be in dialogue with people who are writing these books. <laughs> you know, uh, go to the blogs and write comments, get feedback, send emails to the authors of the books you're reading. Uh, they love receiving this. I know I do. And so don't feel like that you are struggling through these issues on your own because often that will then make you think that you are at odds with your own community in all ways rather than thinking I am just re-inhabiting re how it is that I am part of my community. So one of the things that really frustrates me um, about the way Christianity often conducts itself in churches is that it tends to present, and this is, I'm talking in particular here about um, evangelical Christian churches, uh, again, which is my tradition. <laughs> um, these churches often train their young people, train their youth, such that if they are perceived as struggling with Christianity, if they have questions about their faith life, if they are wrestling with the difficulties of existence, if the problem of evil really seems like a problem, if their gay friend doesn't seem as evil as is often presented in their churches, <clears throat> that if that's the struggle for them, they are then made to feel like, well, they must not have faith, or they have abandoned God, or they are no longer a Christian. And it seems to me that the most important thing those of us who are thinking at these intersections of postmodernism and Christianity can do is to help those people who maybe for the first time when they get to college or in high school reading one of these books I've recommended, when they start to say, you know what, these are questions I really have, we've got to figure out a way to make those questions okay within the context of our Christian communities. So I hope, I encourage um, um, pastors to begin thinking about how it is that, again, rather than saying keep all the possibly divisive stuff out of our communities, to say let's bring the divisive stuff into our communities because that's where it turns out all of our congregants actually live. So I have student after student come to me having just heard Nietzsche in one of my classes <clears throat> saying, well, I'm really messed up now. I can't make sense of this because this means that God must be dead. There is no God. I, I can't be a Christian, right? And I'm like, wow, 
where did you get this dichotomy? And for them, it's, well, this is just what I've been taught. This is how I make sense of myself. And so for me, the importance of reading these sorts of books, being in these sorts of conversations, <clears throat> going to coffee shops and talking with other people struggling with these issues, is that it helps us to understand Christianity, again, is not as obvious as we think. Christian ethics is not as easy as we make out. Christian truth is not something that is stable in the ways that we sometimes act. Well, Aaron Simmons, I've very much enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Aaron Simmons is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. He's the author of God and the Other, Ethics and Politics After the Theological Term. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at KWAM News Talk 990 in Memphis, Tennessee. KWAM is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. Jeff Krause engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dahl did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.